I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah. And together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today we are ringing in the new year by answering your questions. So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. Hi, Lindsay and Sarah. Hi, listeners. Uh, I'm very excited. And uh, we're all back because we started 2022 in a very poopy way. Uh, we were hacked. Linz, do you want to tell our listeners more about that? Super Not really, thing? but it's a thing that happened. Our Instagram is gone, except now it's back on a new channel. So don't be confused if you're already following us again by accident because some people have done that already and we haven't even gone up yet anyway <laughs> um, you can now follow us on instagram at whaletales underscore org and our other handles for the podcast and for facebook and twitter for whaletales are the same and they're all still there and the website is fine and everything is fine it's everything on instagram is just starting again it's very new year of us new year new instagram <laughs> totally what i wanted to do uh-huh. <laughs> anyway but please do follow us at whale tales underscore underscore or <laughs> i can't say that i'll get better <laughs> um because we miss you and we know that a great great many of you found us from instagram and we are sorry this happened obviously we did not want it to happen um but it did, and now you get to add a fun little underscore when you're looking for your pictures of whales. Most importantly, we did not lose any stories. That is correct. That is true. That is true. They are on the website. Yeah. We always say this because that's the rules of having a social media account, but like, make sure you are telling your friends or sharing our posts because that'll really help uh, people find us again if they would like to do so. Mm-hmm. Also, thank you to friend of the pod, Ashley, for filling in for me while I was getting acquainted with the newest member of my family's pod, my little one, Thomas. Yay! Yay! yay. Ashley, if you're listening, you did a fabulous job, as fully expected, Um, and I'm very happy to be back. Things have settled, and I'm probably jinxing that by saying (laughs) it out loud. With a three-month-old at home and a three-year-old. <laughs> but uh, everybody in the house is doing really, really well. Baby Thomas is great. Big brother James is also great. Parents are surviving, but mostly great. So I think that I'm going to be able to be back regularly. You know, life and parenthood both can throw wrenches at us. But uh, that's the plan is I think that we'll be we'll be back to our regular monthly episodes. And I'm so excited to be back and for us to all be in your ears. Yay ears. Um, Yeah, I don't know. We just hope you guys all had a delightful uh, winter or summer if you were in the southern hemisphere. Um, Yeah, things around here were quiet on the podcast front, but uh, busy on the off the internet uh front i guess Mm -hmm. like busy in comparison to the rest of my life i yeah i don't know it was just it was a good break from internet life Lindsay, was there any exciting um cetacean news since we last recorded uh there was so um since it's the new year there's been all sorts of summing up year in review reports and so while 2021 was maybe not 
the highlight of your life. It was a great year for whales in the Salish Sea. Um, there was incredible amounts of sightings, just like the Biggs killer whales were seen 1,067 times over 329 days of the year of 2021, which is massive. The Ooh. previous record in 2019 was 747. So that's pretty big. The Bigs also had 11 new calves in 2021. Oh my gosh. Including T124A7, who was was spotted on New Year's Eve, which is adorable. Oh, just sneaking Um, in there. T124A, the calf's mom, Kitty Wake, has had, as you can tell if you know anything about Bigs numbers, has had seven calves. And she is 37. Wow. Jeez. Jeez. Impressive. Yeah. And just doing good. Good for her. Yeah. Um, There was also a record of humpback calves in the uh, scene, obviously not birthed in the Salish Sea, but seen in the humpback season this year. A record of 21 humpback calves were seen this year, nearly doubling 2020's count of 11. And we do have three reported pregnancies in the Southern Resident killer whale population that will hopefully be coming to fruition at some point soon. And the youngest calf of the Southern residents, L125 element was seen at the end of December and is doing quite well. Nice. So yeah, there was a couple of grand slam days, which I didn't actually know what it was. I've known triple headers, which were normally were Southern residents, bigs and humpbacks, but grand slams are, Bigs, or just any kind of orca, humpbacks, gray whales, and minkies. Ooh, and there was oh a couple of days of that this year. So if you were lucky enough to be on, on a boat, you probably had a pretty good time. And please send us your story if you haven't yet. Thank you. Indeed. Oh, that's a lot of news. I know. <laughs> I think the whales had a more exciting year than most Definitely. Of us. They definitely did more things than I did. I mean, I also had a baby, but I feel like it's more impressive when <laughs> No, like you had a most exciting, more more exciting year than the rest of us put together. <laughs> so, listeners, to get not just you, but really more so to get the three of us back in the swing of things and relearning how to podcast, we decided we wanted to start the year off with a mailbag episode. Our regular discussions, fun flip of facts, and whale tales will all be back next month. If you're wondering if you missed the chance to ask us your question, you didn't. It was not part of the hack. That would have been worse. Oh, no. Oh, man. Yep. That would have been. (laughs) We had so many great questions left over from our last mailbag that we wanted to answer them this time around and hopefully have another one at some point. If you have questions or if these questions trigger questions in your own mind, you can send them to us by emailing us or tweeting at us or commenting on our posts on Facebook or Instagram, uh, or you can just follow us on Instagram or your favorite social media to uh, hear for our next call for mailbag questions. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, we love answering your guys' questions. This was super fun to research. So let's kick things off with a question we got but weren't able to answer during our Orca Month mailbag. So this came to us during Global Orca Week. And the question is, do orcas have signature whistles like bottlenose dolphins do? So as is our typical disclaimer when it comes to answering any question about orcas, the answer that we have the most information about is specific to the Pacific residents and transients or residents and pigs because they're the best studied. So 
who knows about all of the other orcas, but this is what we know so far about the Northern Pacific orcas. And we have a great article that we will link in the show notes if you want to dig more into this. So the gist is that residents or fish-eating orcas, they do have signature whistles, but they don't act the same as bottlenose dolphins' signature whistles. So they don't act as sort of an individual signature or quote-unquote like a name the way that a bottlenose dolphin's signature whistle does. Uh, If you don't know about bottlenose dolphins' signature whistles, very brief description. Bottlenose dolphins originally studied under human care, uh, found an interesting anomaly in their vocalizations that they produced specific vocalizations, signature whistles, that would act like, in human language, us saying our name. So they would use different signature whistles to communicate with different other individual bottlenose dolphins. So it would be similar to me saying, hey, Lindsay, hey, Sarah, I'm Nicole. (laughs) That is a a huge over-exaggeration or... Is it more like, hey, Nicole? (laughs) Yes. Big, big, big simplification of of an amazing, amazing study uh, with lots and lots of sub-studies done on it. But that's the gist of of what signature whistles are in bottlenose dolphins. And in orcas, it seems to not be as important or at least not yet discovered as part of the vocalization patterns of residents and babes. So the the residents, they have whistles that that seem to kind of have the same signature as bottlenose dolphins, but they don't use them in the same way, at least not that we can tell. Uh, With bigs, they have a very limited sort of vocal repertoire. They only really have three different kind of whistles, at least here in the North Pacific. Um, And the variation between individuals using those three calls is very small. So at least bigs don't even seem to have anything like a signature whistle. Um, and we're not really clear on what the main purpose is, whether it's something to increase group cohesion or delineate social relationships. Um, it seems to be more heard from the teas during food sharing or other post-hunt behaviors, but not during a hunt, which they usually don't vocalize a whole lot during hunt anyway, so... Yeah, the short answer to a very interesting question is... Probably not, but as with everything, who knows? (laughs) My favorite thing about being a biologist is it could all change tomorrow. Yeah, it it seems like from reading that article, and like this is a huge oversimplification, but that like the calls are like the difference between the calls are sort of enforcing like group behavior rather than Mm, individual behavior. Yeah, in bottlenose dolphins, at least. So, I mean, that could be totally wrong, but that's like the the instinct that sort of tracks with their other behaviors as well. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting to to speculate or theorize, to use the more scientific mm-hmm. term, um, just about sort of like the evolutionary tract from a social evolution perspective mm-hmm. of signature whistles, because if you think about the life history of bottlenose dolphins versus especially residents like the point of signature whistles one of them with bottlenose dolphins is bottlenose dolphins don't have the same sort of social cohesion um, and sort of family group ties that residents do but they 
are often sort of like geographically linked to each other. And so you might see a bottlenose dolphin that you saw months ago Mm -hmm. when you kind of like join up with them again. So I'd be like, hey, I haven't seen you you (laughs) in a long time yeah their group membership is more like if they happen to be in the same place then they will hang out whereas yeah yeah. killer whales like travel together and spend their whole lives together in some cases so yeah like Mm -hmm. like if i i mean especially when the three of us used to live within a two block radius of each other we didn't say each other's names a lot (laughs) yeah so it's I mean, that's kind of an interesting, you know, it's it's very speculative, but just thinking about it from a, from a use perspective, I don't know how much use Southern residents would have. Who knows? Yeah. And then there's the whole, um, I'm just thinking about you and the amount of times you say your children's names because you need them to stop doing things. But that <laughs> makes me think of beluga whales and contact calls, which are different, right? They're not, they're mother calf. They're not calf named thomas and yeah it's just like yeah it's more like a hey you rather than a yeah hey Lindsay. yeah yeah exactly so everybody's different but it seems to be working so far so our next question is also kind of similar uh, on the in the vein of vocalizations this one comes from heather who i literally just messaged saying i was about to answer this question she got very excited about it in her way um so the question is do cetaceans have accents depending on where they're from so it can depend on the species or the location uh, but the answer is yes when you look at orcas and humpbacks so humpback songs are different all over the world uh but geographically the same so a group um population like eastern australia versus the north pacific up here would have a different song but the same song in the same part of the ocean. But again, these are humpbacks, so they would be solitary, um, not all together singing a song like a Disney movie, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And just as Nicole talked about, oh, look, I just said your name. Look at that. (laughs) Um, Orcas are thought to use accents to avoid inbreeding. Um, So like resident languages um with clan specific dialects and pod specific accents so if you're familiar more with the northern residents there's a couple of different clans up there with pods within them if you can't really figure out what that means you can think about the southern residents jk and l pods are all in the j clan so they're all in the same clan but their pods have different accents so that they can tell hopefully um who belongs to who and avoid inbreeding. So mm-hmm. the northern residents, there's about 300 of them. So they have more clans. I think three is hard because they skipped a bunch of letters. So yeah. stay tuned for our northern resident episode <laughs> coming sometime. <laughs> <laughs> but so up there, it's much easier um, to spread out. But they, yeah, so they, I don't know what that sentence was. So <laughs> the, the way I always described it with the southern residents is imagine that all the southern residents are speaking english they're just speaking southern resident or specifically they're speaking j clan yeah um but j pod is speaking j clan again we're using the the analogy they're speaking english here so j pod is speaking english or j clan speak with a canadian mm-hmm. accent mm-hmm. l pod is speaking english with an american accent and 
K-Pod is speaking English with an English accent. Yeah, and then the, the Northerns would have Australian accents and Kiwi accents and stuff. And it's, yeah, similar. You can tell, even you could go even more specific. English, everybody has UK accents, but you can tell if you're from mm-hmm. the UK, if you're from um, Yorkshire or Cornwall or Liverpool or London, like all of those kinds of things. You can only tell when you know it really well, as mm-hmm. opposed to anything else so stuff like that Uh, amazing okay um moving away from vocalizations our next question comes from liz who asked why are there stories in our culture about people getting swallowed by whales are they actually based are they based on actual instances of that happening oh boy okay this was a fun one actually um so in the late 1800s a story came out about this guy named James Bartley, who was on a whaling expedition in the Falkland Islands. And the story claims that his boat was attacked by a sperm whale and he landed inside of the whale's mouth. The story then continues that he survived the ordeal and his like, so he was in like a little boat off of a big boat. Um, So the big whaling boat then later caught the whale and skinned it because otherwise like the, because they were, I don't know, the, hot weather would have rotted the whale meat i'm this as you'll find out the story has a lot of holes in it um it says that bartley was inside of the whale for about 36 hours his skin had been bleached by the gastric juices and that he was blind for the rest of his life and then he apparently like continued to work like three weeks later and he lived for another 18 years um this story got published all over the place it was published in 1896 in the new york world um calling him like a modern jonah um it was published like by a scientist in 1914 in another journal. Um, It was basically like published and shared all over the place. Uh, But then in much more recently, some people have actually like tried to research it. And so it turns out that the ship that he was on um, was not a whaling ship and did not include a crew member named James Bartley. Um, yeah, it's like people who knew people who are on that ship, like that never happened, all kinds of things. Um, basically fake news. It was just like sensationalized stories that were passed around because they probably made like they sold newspapers um, yeah. or sold sold journals. So, yeah. Um, so this case, it was a sperm whale, which is like theoretically possible to swallow a human whole, like they swallow giant squids whole. Um, but there's definitely no way for that person to live inside of their stomach. They would have suffocated. They would have drowned. They would have been crushed. Yeah. And like, they have a four chambered stomach because they're ruminants, like sort of cow, like, so like there's many stomachs with like big muscles and also like their stomachs are strong enough and muscular enough to resist being attacked by a squid. Mm -hmm. So the human's not going to (laughs) live. Yeah. In terms of like why they happen, who knows? It's probably just one of those like, fear-mongering like you see you know like Jonah and the whale all those ones like I have no idea where that story would have come from other than just people like knowing about these animals and like assuming that they could get swallowed by them um in terms of other whales other than sperm whales uh humpbacks or any baleen whales are the other ones that are like theoretically big enough except 
you can't get swallowed by them because they have a baleen in the way. Um, so yeah, they're not used to swallowing large things. They swallow like maybe small fish would be the largest thing that they swallow. Um, a photographer, uh, I'll put a link to this article because um, it was kind of interesting in the show notes about um, a guy who it was a photographer and he was swimming in the middle of a giant bait ball and then got kind of like into the mouth of a broody's whale and then spat back right back out, which like for the guy must have been completely terrifying, but also like don't swim in a giant bait ball that's so dense that you can't see what's around you because it could have been a lot worse than a broody's whale. Um, and then also for the whale, like they're used to being in bait balls and like out competing other predators and stuff. So like if they swallow something that's like, I don't know, a seal or whatever that they didn't mean to swallow, like, of course, they're just going to spit it out. Like they're just looking for whatever the food they like and they'll spit out anything that they don't like or that doesn't fit. Um, British whales are uh, baleen also. Yeah. So yeah, this guy, like, it's cool. Like, not cool. It's notable because his buddies on the boat nearby managed to get a picture with his, like, legs sticking out of the whale's mouth. But, like, he wasn't really in any danger from the Broody's whale. The, presumably sharks and other things. A different story. Yeah. Don't, like, don't go swimming in bait balls. That's where all the predators are. Yeah. But also, like you're disturbing animals from doing their natural behavior of like feeding and stuff. Like if you want to observe feeding, like don't get in the water because you're affecting the behavior that you're trying to observe. But anyways, that's a different lecture. <laughs> so yeah, as far as I know, nobody has gotten swallowed by a whale. Um, and yeah, I don't know. People better at like mythology and history are probably better to answer like why why we have so many stories other than just fear-mongering. Not something I ever want to really experience. No. All right. Our next question comes to us from Val, and she wasn't sure if this has been asked before, and I know that it has not because we've never answered it. (laughs) She wanted to know, do orcas have non-orca best friends? Like, do they get along better with some specific whale species, like in a Disney movie? (laughs) I added the Disney movie part. Um, the answer is, I wish, but no. (laughs) That's the short answer. There are plenty of stories, we even have some on our website, um, out there about orcas interacting with other species in, I'm going to use this very loosely, a non-predatory way, but not in a, what's the word? Positive? yeah that way that way There's yeah mutualistic mutualistic yes that's that was i was looking for the science term but also positive works not any mutualistic or mutually beneficial or positive way orcas regardless of the type um it's not even just sort of resident or big or or whatever it seems it seems as though you might <laughs> even say <laughs> that orcas just like the company of other orcas Interesting story, though. There are some examples of, especially here in the North Pacific, other species taking advantage of the fact that there are different ecotypes of orcas. Um, We've heard this story uh, a couple of times from one of our researcher friends, Dr. Lance Barrett-Leonard, that the Pacific white-sided dolphins here in the North Pacific obviously could tell the difference between bigs who would eat them and residents who will not. 
<laughs> because residents eat the same kind of food as Piscopopeda dolphins, namely salmon, is what they're all looking for. And the Pacific white-sided dolphins will gang up on small groups of residents because Pacific white-sided dolphins, uh, we often call them legs on the podcast as the sort of short form of their scientific name. Um, they are jerks, even though we love them to pieces, <laughs> like most dolphins. And they travel in huge groups, like three to five hundred sometimes. Um, and Obviously, Southern residents do not travel in groups that many because there aren't that many. And so sometimes large groups of 50 or so legs will gang up on a couple of Southern residents in the middle of a hunt and steal all their food. So it's uh, not surprising that when you are the top predator in the ocean, and that's the kind of, you know, flack you get from other species that you wouldn't want to be anyone's friend. Yeah. Oh, more times. so biologically, they just don't need to. They get everything that they need socially from each other. Uh, and if you want to hear about some of the less mutually beneficial, sorry, that's my laundry going crazy in the background. <laughs> um, if you want to hear about some of the less mutually beneficial examples of interspecies interaction between orcas, they do interact with a wide variety of species, not even just other cetaceans and there's going to be a link in our show notes to a definitive version written in 1991 so it's old now but still a really really great read of all of the different types of less than positive interactions orcas can have with other species (laughs) Mm. yeah we do have a story also from ashley that i'll put in the notes of southern residents playing with the harbor porpoise calf i think and just playing just because yeah. They're not need them. They just wanted to play with a toy. Not at floppy. all terrifying. So our next question is from Shysta. Do orcapods ever join? And the answer is, is complicated. Um, again, most of the things that we know, still, even with something so seemingly obvious as pod behavior in orcas, is still unknown a lot in most of the world. So... Most of what we know, again, from here. So superpods are things that you may have heard of if you've been out on a boat in the Sailor Sea or up with the Northern Residents. Um, these are pods. So again, with the Southern Residents, it would be most of JK and L pods together. As many, uh, and there's definitely been ones of all the animals, um, 73 to, 7 to 79, whatever year that was. Um, of all of them and it's most likely for the purpose of mating and so that again like we talked about with the accents they can mix together um, outside of their pods and make strong babies hopefully Um, there has also been many instances of smaller matrilines or members of matrilines who have lost their matriarch um, who may join or adopt other members which is but it's rare the biggest um not really example of pods joining, but um, matri- matri- lines mixing would be Onyx, of course, who is a member of L-Pod, who spent most of his life with J-Pod, na- mainly with Granny before she died, and now is, I think, with the J-19s. Um, but there's lots of other ones, and a lot of the bigs now in the Sailor Sea spend time together, whether or not they are 
kind of related or not. Um, I know the 37 A's and B's, I think, are often seen together in semi-larger pods, probably like 15, maybe for hunts, a big tea party, as everybody who's on the whale watching um, calls it. They do a hunt and then they have a big breach fest. There's been, we've got lots of stories of teas having random meetups of a bunch of mat of a bunch of matriarchs just coming together and like having like a kind of meeting underwater while everybody just mills around and nobody knows what's happening, but they're obviously making plans. <laughs> Maybe they're matchmaking, who knows? <laughs> um, so yeah, we don't know why or what when, um, aside from mating, um, with bigs, it's often the males just separate and go off and find a mate and then sometimes come back, sometimes do something else. But we'll see as the more research grows, especially in Western Australia, they're doing a ton of research on those pods right now and seeing how they're interacting again, of course, because they only come for a season. It's hard to know what they're doing the rest of the time. And that's the problem with all whales, as we've talked about. So maybe is the answer. <laughs> kind of. Sometimes. Maybe kind of it's complicated. It's like our relationship status on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this one uh, came to us back in the fall of 2021. And um, Lisa asked, uh, with the beluga here in Puget Sound, yes, there was a strange beluga sighting in Washington. Um, anyways, got her thinking about dorsal fins ranging from the beluga that have no dorsal fin to the adult male orca who have giant dorsal fins. And so, yeah, I think she was just wondering if we could sort of talk a little bit about why there's such variability. And to figure that out, we need to figure out what's the purpose of a dorsal fin. So the purpose of a dorsal fin, basically, is for stability at high speed. So it acts kind of like the rudder of a boat, except on the other side. Um, and so especially for like high speed predators, like orcas, um, having some extra stability when you're doing that is really important. For an example, uh, just to, sorry to interrupt you, but for an example of what would happen to an orca, for example, if they were traveling, uh, you know, at their top speed, if they were going about 40 kilometers an hour, it's funny visually, because what would happen if you took the dorsal fin off is they would just start spinning on mm. the horizontal axis. They would <laughs> spiral. Just, yeah. Um... And I like the visual of that. Yes. Good visual. Hard to be oriented for like tracking down some prey. <laughs> yeah. So if you, if you know about the three species of cetacean who spend their whole lives in the Arctic, the beluga, narwhal, and bowhead, they don't have dorsal fins. And to figure out why, we have to look at where the dorsal fin is, which is right behind the blowhole. And the blowhole is how cetaceans breathe. And if you are in and amongst um, thin pieces of ice or deep pack ice, trying to find maybe a small hole where you can get to the surface, your dorsal fin is going to get in the way. And so breathing is more important than stability. And they probably are have different ways of having stability. In the case of belugas, it's mainly because they, I mean, they go fast, but they don't go that fast. Um, and but not for that long. And not, yeah, either. not for that long. And also 
and they're not chasing prey. They're more like opportunistic hunters. Um, but also, like, they, they have big clams, yeah. which don't have to go anywhere. No, exactly. And they have like the pontoons on this side that are made of blubber. So that probably helps like distribute their weight to help them be more stable, sort of like a um, catamaran. Um, yeah. So, and then, you know, all the ones in between, it's just that like balance of like, whales aren't going to evolve a giant dorsal fin if it's not beneficial in some way. So they'd have as big a dorsal fin as they need or can fit under the pack ice. Our next question also came to us from Global Orca Week. And the question was, why can't orcas chase deep diving great white sharks? Love this question. Um, There's a lot of answers, both physiological answers as well as kind of ecological answers, sort of like from a, from a, a behavioral standpoint why um so i'm going to talk about the behavioral ones first but then get into the actual physiological issue behaviorally first of all we have to look at of all of the ecotypes of orcas that we know of there's only one who it's been proven their primary diet is shark and that's the offshores here from the north pacific now that doesn't mean that there aren't potential cases of other members of other ecotypes uh hunting shark we know that that does happen sometimes we do know uh from what i think is probably the best research project ever that if you play orca calls around sharks who would in their sort of environment have come across orcas sharks will swim away from those calls (laughs) including great white sharks so we do know that that even the great white has some sort of instinctual fear response to the calls of orcas. But even those offshores ecotype here in the North Pacific, great white sharks are not going to make up a huge percentage of their diet, even though a large percentage of their diet is shark. They just don't... like. Yes, technically a great white shark can and has been seen in the North Pacific, but it's not a frequent occurrence. <laughs> and um, there, there's a lot of damage that a great white shark could do as the prey to a predatory killer whale. They are, yes, bigger, but not by a whole lot. <laughs> Um, and obviously great white sharks have a lot of teeth and so yeah there's just it doesn't make a lot of sense as a predator for you to go after something that could potentially do so much damage to you that's not to say that it never happens but it's not something that any predator is really going to evolve for likely so that's sort of the ecology reasons behind why orcas aren't going to chase great white sharks or other deep diving sharks But we also know that great whites have that fear response, so it has happened. So let's go into the physiological state of why they can't chase them down deep. Or can they? (laughs) So the thought for a very, very, very long time is that even if killer whales were going to go against all of those ecological reasons why going after great white shark is maybe not the best idea from a prey perspective was uh, that killer whales can usually only dive to about 100 to 500 feet, and great whites can reach depths of almost 4,000 feet. So very, very deep. And scientists revealed that a great white shark named Shaq 
because <laughs> it was in Australia, New Zealand. <laughs> Just love. <laughs> they nicknamed this great white shack. <laughs> was able to go 3,937 feet deep uh, or 1,200 meters as it traveled across open ocean. So that wasn't even just like a diving speed. That was, sorry, that wasn't even just a diving depth. It was a traveling depth, which is crazy. So great weights can go really, really deep. And we didn't think that killer whales could. So that was another reason why maybe great whites aren't a great prey option. However, our friend Jared Towers, who is a killer whale researcher here in the North Pacific, was studying killer whales in the Atlantic sometimes. This is something that we actually learned about Atlantic killer whales before Pacific. That never happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he witnessed a tagged Atlantic, Southern Atlantic killer whale diving 3,500 feet deep. So, so crazy. 3,000 feet deeper than we previously thought killer whales <laughs> could go. <laughs> This is not just a measly like, oh, cool, it went 20 feet deeper. 3,000 feet deeper than we thought it could go. And specifically, it was looking for toothfish off of a commercial fishing line. <laughs> so also smart. Um, and it is just really, really crazy to, to learn that. It again goes to show how much biology can change from one day to the next in terms of what we know about it. But to answer the question, ultimately, is it possible for orcas to chase deep diving great white sharks? Turns out, yes. Yes, it is possible. Is it efficient? Which is always <laughs> what things come down to in the animal kingdom, uh, or really just in nature. No, it is not efficient. Zero. Um, it is not a natural depth. And by that, I don't mean... You know, I mean, it's not a it's not a normalized depth for killer whales to travel. We've already discussed that, you know, of all the ecotypes, they don't really come into contact with great whites a whole ton. Sharks in general, let alone great whites, aren't a huge part of their diet. But also just if you were going to dive that deep, think about the biology between a whale and a shark. A whale is a mammal and a shark is a fish and whales have to breathe air. So even that whale that did get down to almost well yeah almost 3600 feet it can't stay down there for very long um because killer whales are not evolved with the same sort of mammalian diving reflex that let's say beaked whales have where they can go extremely deep for extremely long periods of time that's not the natural physiology of a killer whale and evolution will stop them from doing that Whereas a shark doesn't have lungs, so they don't have to worry about coming up to the surface to breathe. And they actually have an organ called a swim bladder, which kind of helps keep them buoyant or floaty in the water instead of just <laughs> sinking all the time. Um, and a swim bladder is a little bit better at regulating sort of pressure at depth than lungs are. And it's not to say that a swim bladder can't burst the way a lung can. It can. And it's not good <laughs> for the fish, just like it's not good for us to burst our lungs or for other deep diving mammals. But it's a little bit easier for a shark. I went way off track there, but I thought this question was awesome. And, no, it uh, is awesome. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those, like, again, this goes back to our other podcast, uh, Nature Finds a Way, with all of the issues of benefit and efficiency and 
um, using up all their energy in like horror monster movies to chase whoever. Like with killer whales, why there's no need to go down there when there's so many other fish or mammals or turtles or rays or whatever ecotype it is that are at the surface or at 500 feet that you can go down and get and then come back up and breathe and jump and play and everything is great. Um, well, and also to just... go down that deep for, let's say, like a clam versus to go down that deep for a great white shark <laughs> also has a huge cost-benefit analysis to be done that's very, very different. So, yeah, it's not smart. If you're going to risk diving that deep for some prey, you want it to be like a sure bet. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, unless you're a sperm whale who's used to being down there battling yeah. giant squids. No, I mean as a killer whale. Uh, but that's yeah. what you're built for. But yeah, as a killer whale. As all animals, it's got to be, well, not just animals, but everything. It's got to be worth the effort that you're going to put into it because you need the energy yep. to keep going. Eat, swim, and, and make baby sharks. More <laughs> killer whales. Yeah. I do now want to see the movie of a baby great white and a baby orca. That would be cute. Oh my god. <laughs> So cute. Maybe be they so can become upsetting. friends. It's like Fox and the Hound all over again. Oh no. <laughs> the saddest Disney movie of all time. So this is our last question uh, from Mackenzie. She says she's curious about the impact of local fish farming on the orca population. Uh, some have recently closed and it seems like it might be promising for the population of fish and orcas. So this is a very complicated question with a lot of opinions uh, that are could be heated and stuff. So we're just going to talk about some facts and know that it's an ongoing thing. And it's never going to be black and white, pun intended, as I <laughs> like to say every time I'm talking about the issues surrounding killer whales. Because a lot of people have a lot of opinions when it comes to sustainable fishing. So... Um, we all know how important salmon is to southern residents and northern residents and many other species off of our coast. Um, and the especially marine mammals who are not only prey for bigs off of our coast, but also support the ecosystem in various ways to help all of the animals. Um, fish farms cause a lot of concern for wild salmon and other fish and animals. And the main um, from a lot of different reasons. They can escape and compete with wild salmon. They do produce sea lice, which uh, can cause issues with wild salmon. They have waste and chemicals. Many viruses and diseases not known in local species can be leached out into the population. So there are lots and lots of issues with salmon fish farms definitely off of our coast, for sure. Um, sustainable fishing is complex, but... Again, it's important to remember that it's there's lots of different things. Fish farms, as a generic term, doesn't necessarily equal bad. I know that there's a lot of other fish farms in the world that are fine and are helping. Um, but it's mainly, when you think of fish farms when you live here, you think of Atlantic salmon, which when you look at salmon, salmon are huge. But Atlantic salmon are bigger. Mm -hmm. And they will beat up our salmon. And that's the biggest problem as like all of their things that we don't have the viruses, the sea lice, the chemicals, the increased toxicity in our water. All of that is a problem. But if a wild salmon escapes similar to gray squirrels versus red squirrels, 
in uh, BC, they'll beat him up and that's that. So those are the main issues. So fish farming closing Atlantic salmon farms in off the west coast is positive, but again, that puts more pressure on the wild salmon fisheries. So it's going to be hard for a long time until we can figure out a balance mm -hmm. between people wanting to eat salmon and everybody else. Indeed. It's complicated. The theme is. <laughs> I wanted to say just this episode, but I feel like we talk about it all the time. Science is complicated, but if you're interested, the best thing that you can do is support sustainable fishing, whether you eat from sustainable fishing or you don't eat fish, but still support sustainable fishing by telling your friends about the apps or whatever. Um, that's the best way to do it. The more people who shop, who tell their opinions with their wallets, the more it's going to keep happening. So, And that brings us to the end of our mailbag. If you enjoyed yourself and would like to support our podcast and everything that we do at Whale Tales, there are a couple of things that you can do that would be hugely appreciated. If you are financially in the position to be able to support us financially, you can become a patron on patreon.com slash whaletales. And we have uh, a, bunch, a few different tiers. At $1 a month, you can become a porpoise member. At $5 a month, you can become a dolphin member. Or at $10 a month, you can become a whale member. And Who saw that coming? I, nobody knows. <laughs> nobody knows. Very original naming. Um, each level comes with a variety of perks, like discounts on merch, like our Whaley Great Day shirts and mugs, which are amazing. I'm wearing <laughs> one right now. Um, thank you postcards, access to extended interviews and stories with our guests on the pod, producing your own Fun Plumper fact segment, and all sorts of other things. And I will just put a little shout out to any parents listening who wanted to get Whaley Great Day onesies for their little ones, like I did. <laughs> They run very small. Oh, so no. Oh, order, no. Order up because, uh, first of all, I ordered a three to six month one because my first baby was huge and my second baby followed suit. <laughs> and so I knew that the newborn one would have no chance of fitting. Uh, he immediately outgrew the oh, three no. to six month onesie <laughs> within his first couple of weeks of life. So I couldn't even get a picture of him. <laughs> so I have since ordered the bigger one for him to wear but for those of you either for your own little ones that you are expecting or have or if you're planning on getting it as a really really adorable gift for someone you know expecting a little one size up yeah also if you have a tiny baby maybe reach out to us and we'll uh he wore it one time yeah. and he didn't poop in it so right uh, to those of you who have already supported us on Patreon, thank you so, so much. You are amazing, and we really honestly can't thank you enough. If you aren't able or interested in supporting us financially, there are still lots of things that you can do to help us out and spread the word about our podcast and our whole project. You can leave us a rating and a review on your podcast platform of choice, like Apple Podcasts, and tell your cetacean-loving friends all about us so that more people can find us. Plus, you can send us your feedback so we can keep making the podcast even better. We would love to hear your thoughts on this episode or any episode, so please visit our website, whale-tales.org, and find links to our various social media handles so you can drop us a note. You can also tweet at us directly. I am FHG07, Sarah is Sarah K. Given, no H, and Nicole is Nick F. Can, C-A-N-N. -N. 
You can also head to our website to subscribe to the podcast, check out our merchandise, and read over 1,100 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. That's whale-tales.org. Tales like the story, not tales like the animal. And if you've seen a cetacean in the wild, we would love to add your story to our library. Click the share link on our website or email us a voice memo to tell us all about your incredible encounter. Or you can contact us on social media. We're at whaletales.org on Twitter and Facebook or at whaletales underscore org on Instagram. Thank you again for listening and for supporting us. And we hope you have a whaley great day.